All right, everybody, welcome to Flyers AD here. It is Thursday, November 18, 2021. A week away from American Thanksgiving. I can't wait. I stuck my goddamn face with turkey. And, uh, you know, you still got to watch the Flyers. They play a lot of hockey in the next couple weeks here. Play uh, Tampa the night, Boston Saturday. And next week, you got three games in four days with a gauntlet of Tampa, Florida, and Carolina uh, surrounding Sweet Thanksgiving Jesus. next Thursday. So, schedule's not getting any easier, Anthony. No, no, it's not. Uh, but, you know, as usual, we always say that this is a good litmus test to try and spin it into a positive narrative. But, yeah, there's... Uh, there's no denying that as of right now, the Flyers are in a thick of games or in a stretch of games rather that could define their season, whether they ultimately fall off a cliff, whether they just hang on, or maybe they staple themselves atop the Metro division. So I think as long as it's not the first option completely falling off of a cliff, I think uh, we could all be happy when it all is said and done. But certainly running the gauntlet in real time is a bit uh, nerve wracking to say the least. And, you know, the results of the last few games may not have been overly favorable. But I do think, you know, especially the Carolina game and the Calgary game, the like, there are flaws in this team. Don't get me wrong. But overall, they hung with and beat two of the better teams in the league. And they weren't pretty. Again, those games were not perfect. But especially the Calgary game, I thought overall they are playing some decent hockey right now. And if somebody could remember how to score a goddamn goal now and again, like I don't think these would be nearly as hard, as, as big struggles as they are. No, of course. And like obviously people will point to the, um, the goaltending. But here's the thing, and the, the sad reality or the good reality, depending which way you want to spin it, is that for you to be a very good team in the NHL, you have to have very good goaltending. And you look at the goaltenders who lead the NHL in goals saved above expected. It's Bobrovsky, it's Campbell, it's Hart, it's Anderson, it's Sesterkin. All of those teams, aside from the Flyers, are, you know, atop their respective divisions. I believe Toronto is second. I think the Rangers are first, uh, third in the Metro. Carolina is second. You know, the Flyers are in the first wildcard spot. You know, even Jacob Markstrom, he comes in on this list as number seven, and he's one of the big reasons as to why Carolina has turned it around. So, like, I know a lot of people will automatically point to, oh, well, they're just getting very good goaltending. No, that is a big reason and arguably the biggest reason. But the vast majority of good teams in the NHL get extremely good goaltending. But additionally, I think that the Flyers are just, like you said, they're not a poor team. They're not a bad team. And if they could figure out how to score a goal, they probably would win. Excuse me they would probably find more ways to win on more nights. And I think one of the biggest, you know, contributing factors right now is in these tight games, they're hanging because of their size and physicality that they brought in during the offseason. Obviously, that's not like the main reason or even like a top three reason, but I've noticed that the Flyers can hang in these tight checking games with big teams because of guys like Rista Linen, because of guys like Zach McEwen. Even a guy like Thompson, who playing on the wing the other game against Calgary, looked a lot better, especially when they had Scott Lawton playing center. I think Thompson, Lawton, and McEwen is the ideal fourth line right now. 
But that's one thing that's been noticeable to me, especially if we saw it when Ristolainen stood up Lucic at the blue line with a hit, is that they've been able to hang with teams physically, which in turn has kept them in a lot of games. Yeah, and, you know, Zach McEwen, man, this guy is really good for a fourth liner. And I, I put on Twitter during the Flames game, like, he is what you needed Nicholas Aubé-Kubel to be. You know, the the guy with speed, physicality, not afraid to get in the offensive you know areas and try and shoot the puck and get creative. You know, he's doing a little bit of everything right now. And, like, that's what you want out of your fourth line. And this is what Aubé-Kubel gave us years ago, um, you know, in 1920, when he looked like that kind of premier uh, depth winger, and then lost it last year and didn't regain it this year. So the fact that McEwen is here doing what he's doing, like, that's really good news right now. Yeah, and that's the, you know, they talked about a lot, Chuck Fletcher that being, in the offseason that they wanted a veteran fourth line. Guys that knew their roles, not guys who were finding their way, let's say, in the likes of a Nolan Patrick or even like a Nick Albay Kubel to an extent last year. Lezinski. They br- Lazinski, Bonneman, probably not to the same extent, but still just a better player. They wanted to bring guys who knew their specific roles, and guys like Thompson and McEwen, I think, fit that bill perfectly, or even a guy like Patrick Brown, unfortunately, he got hurt. But what I've seen from that fourth line, and I don't think it's the best fourth line by any means, I do think when they are able to put Lawton down there, and I'm assuming they're going to put Lawton down to that line for uh, tonight's game, I don't think they'll go back with Limblom all that in the line because of how big of a disaster it was. But I think that if you could have Lawton centering Thompson and McEwen, that would be a fourth line that could hang with most teams. And if you go into a playoff matchup with that as your fourth line and maybe you interchange Brown and Thompson depending on the game or the team you're playing, I think it's a very good fourth line. Now, obviously, when you were icing Thompson as the centerman between Abe Kubel and McEwen, they're getting caught out there a lot. And I wasn't I wasn't going to sit here and say for a second that I thought that that was a good fourth line. But when you're able to drop a guy like Lawton down, who can theoretically hang as a 3C, it makes the entire line a lot better. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, that's one of the benefits the Flyers have this year, is the fact that their forward depth is very, very good, and you can have the luxury of putting a Scott Lawton or Derek Broussard, or even to an extent Lindblom, even though it was a disaster, um, you know, those guys that are probably middle six forwards, you can, you know, put them on your, your fourth line, and it helps the overall product grow when you can bring the best out of guys like Nate Thompson and Zach McEwen. Well, for you, do you, like, and I know that a guy like Nate Thompson, like, I've just always liked the player, but I'm not going to sit here and, here and say that, you know, he's the God's gift to fourth line. But do you think if they have him as the left wing as opposed to the center with Lawton centering them, he could be a regular in the lineup? I think so. And that was the line that they were rolling earlier in the preseason and earlier in the regular season uh, when they had Frost in the picture. Um and you know, Lawton was the center and Thompson was the wing. And that seemed to work out real well. Um, so it would not surprise me that they go back to that now, uh, now that Hayes is back and they've got, you know, some flexibility down the middle where they're not, you know, they don't have to rely on Lawton specifically as, as a center uh, in, the, in the top nine. So you can put him down there and take some pressure off of Thompson as well. And thus, again, everybody gets better because of it. Yeah, and it's kind of like a trickle-down effect, and I guess by extension, because I think Brown, they said, might he has a dislocated thumb and Something might like miss that. a couple yeah. weeks. 
So in my mind, you shift Broussard to 3C and you have Limblom and Konechny on his wings. Is that kind of like where you would go with it? Yeah, for now. And the other thing is I'm saying, like, do you prefer JVR on the top line as opposed to Travis Konechny? I don't know. Um, theoretically, I feel like that would be a good place for JVR because you can let Giroud and Couturier carry him. But, like, it's not working well in execution. But Konechny yeah. has dried up fairly, you know, uh, badly as well. Uh, so... I don't really know, and this is part of the issue with all of your players going cold at the same time, is, you know, what's the difference right now between interchanging JVR with Konechny? You know, probably not a whole lot. Uh, I think at this point, speed is not JVR's best asset, so maybe dropping him down in the lineup and letting Konechny, uh, you know, continue to ride shotgun with, with Jiren Couturier may be the best plan overall, uh, and let JVR focus in more of a two-way role, more of a defensive role. That's what he was, you know very good at earlier this year so maybe that's the best course of action right now but you know uh, until somebody starts scoring i think a lot of these guys are fairly interchangeable yeah that's what i was getting to because uh, on paper it looked like that'd be a good line i was the one who said they should have tried that but to your point that's an extremely slow first line because Katori isn't fast, Giroud has lost a lot of wheels, understandably. And like you said, JVR, that isn't exactly a strong suit. I do feel like once they're in the offensive zone, they can make stuff happen. I think they're all creative enough, good offensive instincts and that. But like getting into the offensive zone has been tough for them. And just put Travis Konechny back there because he kind of looks like he's on an island right now. He was playing with Lawton and Broussard the past two games. Now if it's Limblom and Broussard... You can't imagine that would be any better. And I don't think Konechny's, you know, playing bad per se. I think he's just doing what he does, and that's being a streaky winger. But for streaky wingers, you have to kind of put him in a position to succeed. And that, unfortunately, is not beside guys like Broussard and Limblom, especially a guy like Limblom who's just coming back from the press box and, you know, hasn't scored a goal this season. The the one thing I would like to see is Atkinson up beside Giroud and Katoria and then maybe Konechny with Hayes and Farabee. You know, Konechny and Hayes have had, a, you know, a long-standing chemistry together. They were one of the best lines two years ago, along with Lawton. Farabee would be a theoretical upgrade on that. But it seems that for the time being, at least, they're kind of married to the idea of Hayes and Atkinson together. Yeah, and, you know, it paid off well. They got their goal in uh, the, the Flames game, but... The funny part of all of this is, like, the more they change their lines, the more confused in this whole thing that I get. Because I do feel like the lines they rolled with out of the gate this year, Giroud, Couturier, Konechny, the fab line, and then the third line of, of Lindblom, Lott, and JVR. I feel like that's about as good as you're going to get with this current lineup, with the players Along as with is. Hayes. Well, yeah, you could you could put Hayes in there when, and swap Broussard out, put Broussard on the fourth line, and put Hayes on the second line. like, But... As an overall, you know, well-rounded talent group with a third line focused on the two-way role and the second line being the scorers, the top line being, you know, as, as good as they can get, the top line that's been together for years now. Like, that seems to be still the best way to go about it in terms of things. And, you know, they obviously have to shake it up because the offense dried up. you got to do something. Um, and it doesn't help that the third line collectively doesn't have any scorers on it. But... 
in terms of dispersing talent, that still seems to be the best thing that they've been able to pull out thus far. Because now they're just throwing shit against the wall and hoping it sticks, right? To try and get you know light a fire under anybody. So when they kind of do that, it seems. I don't know if desperate is the right word, but, you know, they're, they're, they are just trying anything at this point. So, I don't know. I do feel like the, 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 those first lines in the year were still the best case scenario in terms of icing the, the most complete lineup you can. Yeah, and that kind of just shows that they are missing that big offensive piece. Because in what I've seen is that you kind of have Katori and Giroux pulling double duty as you know the premier first line and kind of like the shutdown line and obviously Lawton, Limblum and JVR had success as well as a very responsible two-way line that was generating chances just unable to bury it but I, I do think the biggest problem was that they that the fab line was just getting absolutely mutilated in its own end but now you have Hayes back right yeah so with Hayes back in the fold you know that it should be an upgrade and you know they've had two uh, games together and I think that they are you know gonna find their legs sooner rather than later and I do think if you just move the third line like do you think it would be a big change if you had Brassard centering Limblom and JVR as opposed to Lawton Maybe, uh, <laughs> I uh, potentially. I, I think that they're pretty similar players at this point in their career. But Broussard may you could try it. I mean, there's no harm in trying it at this point. But I don't know if it's going to be a major upgrade or not. Yeah, I, I just it's because for me, I look at the fourth line and we saw how bad and awkward it looked with a guy like Limblom. And obviously, Broussard is probably more of a Swiss Army knife at this point than Limblom, but. I just feel like Lawton is the exact type of guy they need on that fourth line with with Thompson and McEwen. Like when they had Lawton out there last game with Thompson and McEwen, I never and even Brown for that for that instance when Brown, but I think he left after after the first period. But specifically with Lawton, whenever they were out there, I was saying to myself like, "Damn, this could be a line that they could probably throw it against any other fourth line in the NHL." What about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do think Lawton excels kind of lower in the lineup. He, he's a very good player, but, you know, at this point in his career, he's a f- very, very good fourth liner who can call it. You can you can put him on the third line, hell, even the second line in the right scenario, and he'll be able to hang with them. Um, but he is best served as a fourth liner at this point where he can just go out there and kind of do his thing. And, you know, he's never really succeeded at 3C in his career. He did a very good job, for what it's worth, earlier this year holding down the fort. But now that you have the luxury of Kevin Hayes being back, you can drop him to the fourth line. And, um, you know, that line was very, very good in the last game. So no reason to, to break that up if you don't have to yet. Yeah, and I think it would help Thompson McEwen a lot, as we previously alluded to. But uh, I wanted to address a bit of this Rosmus Ristolainen situation um, because people have been very, very angry at me that I've been posting his analytics. Just no context, though, just posting straight numbers. You could back me up on that, right? Yes. So... There, there's a few people that I, one in particular, that I, I think he's just on a quest for relevancy, desperately just trying to be noticed, which is fine. Everyone has to start somewhere. <laughs> but um, he's been constantly after me for saying, after years of rejecting analytics, now you're using them to push your preferred narrative. Like, how hypocritical. Kind of trying to get me in a you got me moment. 
And I responded to him by saying, you just proved my point as to why I'm doing this. And I just figured I'd explain it here because it's much easier, you know, with your words as opposed to, you know, trying to put it into tweets one after another. Anyone who's listened to me long enough on here knows I'm not against analytics and never have been. You know, we had Mike Kelly on over a year ago, probably one of the more insightful interviews we've ever done. And one that I would like to do again, just because of how brilliant a guy like Mike Kelly is. I've never once been against analytics. I'm against analytics only. And I believe Jason Murtidis has said that on numerous, uh, numerous times. I'm against people not watching the game, not applying context and just saying, this is what the analytics say this player is, therefore it's that. In terms of Rosmus Ristolainen, people spent all summer posting isolated analytics here and there and everywhere saying why he is bad without any context. Because they wanted to push the narrative that he was the worst defenseman in the NHL. So I wanted to show people that if I really tried this year because he is playing well... I could push a narrative that he's been the best defenseman on the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, do I think that he's their best defenseman? No. I think he's arguably their third best defenseman right now. Pick your Take your pick between him and Sanheim. You know, I would leave more wrist aligning, but I also dislike that player more. So honestly, if you told me Sanheim, I wouldn't fault you for it. But if you wanted to go strictly by analytics, you could try and post... Uh, push a narrative that he has been their best defenseman especially since the Edmonton game which is the last what is it nine games or so especially offensively and then you take his deployment into account offensive zone starts this that and the other thing but in reality all the analytics prove is that in his specific role as the number four defenseman on the Flyers he has been the best in his role does that mean that he's been better than Ivan Provorov and Justin Braun? No, but in their respective roles, he's been better, which is what the analytics proved he was doing in Buffalo. It didn't prove that he was their worst defenseman or the worst defenseman in the NHL. It proved that as a number one defenseman, he was probably as bad as they come. Obviously, some of that was in part to being on the Buffalo Sabres, but I do think that he should never be anywhere close to a number one or a top pair for that matter. So when I post these isolated analytics that look like I'm trying to, you know, cherry pick these stats to try and push my preferred narrative, I'm doing it in a facetious way to prove to everyone how easy it is to do on both sides of the coin if you really, really try the uh, you know i've often said that it you know it's not the analytics that piss me off it's the people that create the analytics that piss me off because they use them entirely for cherry picking and building narratives against players like Ristolainen, you know because you can pick the numbers that make them look bad i'll never forget the segment we did on here last year with kevin hayes and 
we listed a bunch of numbers that made him seem really good. And then somebody on Twitter the next morning gave us a list of numbers that were really bad. Because <laughs> you, you, you want to pick the numbers that make him look bad. See, that's what you're going to go by. And, you know, for for somebody to accuse you of cherry-picking numbers to make Ristolainen look good is just like the ultimate irony of the analytics community. And, you know, I've heard the term sample size quite a bit lately. Not just Ristolainen, but a couple of different players. And it's one of my least... <laughs> liked terms sample size because you know well you know you can ignore you know however long he was in buffalo five six seven years and, and just focus on the nine games here but it's like it's not the same you know he's not playing the same role in philadelphia that he was in buffalo not only is he not playing the same role this is a much better fucking team than the buffalo sabers you know there, there's so much context to what goes into Ristolainen and playing well. And this is the whole fucking reason Chuck Fletcher acquired him in the first place is because you have a guy like this who, you know, is a top four right-handed defenseman with a physical side who can, you know, has produced plenty of offense with the Sabres in his career. And you put him on here, you put him behind Provorov and Ellis or Provorov and Braun when Ellis isn't fucking hurt. And he becomes all of a sudden very good. And listen, for whatever reason, those people cannot admit when a player like Ristolainen is good. I mean, there people are dying on this hill right now, this analytics community. And I don't really understand why you can't just admit, hey, Ristolainen's pretty good. How many times over the last few weeks have I come on this show and said nice things about Travis Sanheim? And I fucking hate Travis Sanheim. He's playing exactly. well. I'm going to fucking credit the guy for playing well. Because at the end of the day, I want this team to succeed. And if Ristolainen and Sanheim are going to be a great pair, which they have been, and they keep getting better by the game, which is great, like, I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to sit here and be pissed off and die on some hill that Travis Sanheim is playing bad when he's clearly playing better. I said nice things about JVR to start the year. I don't like JVR either, okay? Like, I, I just don't understand for somebody to accuse you of cherry-picking analytics when all fucking analytics are are cherry-picking numbers to build a fucking narrative God, it's dumb. Like you could, like you could push the narrative easily that Ristolainen has been their best defenseman since that the Edmonton road trip. You know, he's first in expected goals or second in expected goals against per sixty, first in goals against per sixty, best uh, Corsi, best expected goals for percentage, shot differential, like all that. And and this is not this is on the on the year as a whole, okay? On the year as a whole, among all Flyers forwards and all Flyers defensemen, Ristolainen has the highest expected goals for per sixty. Among all skaters, <laughs> more than Giroux, Katori, Van Riemsdyk, all of them. But am I gonna sit here and try and push these numbers to try and say? He's their best offensive player. Obviously not. I think he's one of them, sadly enough. But, I mean, this is the whole point as to why. And I'm even thinking of doing it now with the expected goals 4 per 60. Just to, you know, hurt feelings. That's what I said <laughs> yesterday. And I ended up just taking down the tweet because it's just so... People get so fucking angry about it that they were wrong. And, like, yeah. even when, like... You, they admit that they're right. They have to be like I. I think Dan Silver put out a thread, and Charlie just called him dumb flat out. Yep. He said like this is dumb, and it's just like why is it dumb? Like why? Because then they start with the whole you know well statistically it was far more likely that he was going to be worse than it was he going to be bad. Like that's what I don't like is because 
they used numbers. And you know what? Albeit, this is a small sample size for Ristolainen. You know, he's played 12 games with the Flyers. You know, two of them were bad to start the year. And I think since then, the last 10 games, he's been getting increasingly better. But also, you're using a seven or eight year sample size from when he was playing a completely different role on a completely different team. So when you give me those numbers, they don't mean a whole lot of anything to me because I'm saying you're giving me facts and metrics and statistics about what happened somewhere where he's do he was doing something completely different. Even if Ristolainen, let's say AV decided, okay, we're going to put him on the top pair with Ivan Provorov. Oh, he still wouldn't be the number one, but at least he'd be on the top pair. Then I'd be like, okay, now those metrics come into handy. And to be honest, I think that's why he will never be on the top pair because there is a big sample size of him failing in that role. But in the role he's playing right now, he's doing extremely, extremely well. And it's almost like, and the problem is, is that he is inevitably going to have a bad game. It is absolutely inevitable that that's going to happen. And then that's when everyone's going to come out of the woodwork and just torch this guy. And I just, I don't understand just why people just don't say like, I, I was wrong. He's playing well so far. Maybe he'll do bad in the future. But for the time being, I'm not going to try and warp these narratives and these numbers into proving that he actually is still playing bad. He, he just the, the, I, I, I get it. You want to rely on what he did in Buffalo by, you know, an earmark for the guy. And there's a good chance by the end of the year he could be bad. But, like, this is what watching the game is fucking about, is is going through the storyline of the season and game by game watching him get better. Because if you're watching these fucking games, he's been pretty goddamn good. You know, he may be legitimately their best defenseman over the last three games because Braun and Provorov have taken at least a bit of a step back compared to their dominance yeah, a few weeks had- ago. They've had some rough games yeah. lately. And, and, like, it's just, I, I get it. It's 12 games. A couple of them weren't great. But, like, he's playing good. Why can't you just take it as a victory? It's because people don't fucking know. There's uh, ineffective math has his uh, point projections for the season. And he has the Flyers finishing dead last in the Metro by a wide friggin' margin. It's like an 18% chance to make the playoffs or something. I mean, it's not even close. Devils have like 40. So, and, but he's using the numbers of Carter Hart and the goaltending from last season to make those projections. And now that he's being cornered and Carter Hart has a fucking 930 save percentage this year, he's going, well, it's a small sample size. You know, Hart's career based on last season. It's like, bro. Carter Hart had one bad year of his entire life at this point, okay? And you're going to base it off of that because you can't even admit you're wrong. Hey, Carter Hart's having good. No, it's a sample size. Like, I'm just, I'm just, the end, One of my favorite parts of Twitter the last few days is the fact that everyone's coming together to dunk on these fucking analytic fools because they absolutely deserve it. You know, they're, they're, they would rather in, <laughs> live and die by the fact that this team is bad. They're not going to get any better because of... Last year, because of other guys like Ristolainen and whoever the fuck else they brought on, without <laughs> all this, we miss Shane Goss to spare. Shut the fuck up. 
Jesus Christ. Has anybody seen Shane Gossesburg play in Arizona? He may have a lot of points, but his defensive skills are fucking atrocious, okay? He sucks. I would rather have Ristolainen play an overall competent game of hockey than I would live and die by Shane Gossesburg falling down in the defensive zone because he had a horrible turnover at the goddamn blue line, okay? Like... I just, I don't understand why you have to live and die by these numbers. These people live and die by the numbers because they're not watching the fucking games. And it's so goddamn apparent they're not watching the games because you can't say a nice thing about Ristolainen when he's clearly playing well right now. Well, like, I have a buddy who he actually works in the analytics department for a bank up here in Canada. So a lot of time, like he graduated with a big business degree, you know, he's very um, privy to all this information. And he often says like how bad of a state hockey analytics are in and not in the sense that the numbers lie and that you shouldn't look at numbers. He admits that analytics are a very good tool in the tool chest and they should be consulted in player evaluation. But His problem is that you have a lot of guys, and he talked about Jay Fresh, who I personally, I think of the analytics people, he's one of the better ones. That's just my opinion, but I don't agree with... That's a bad take. Pardon me? That's a bad take. You you don't think he's one of the better ones of the analytics people? No, not at all. In fact, I dislike him more than most people, because those player cards don't mean jack. Well, like, okay, like, I mean in the sense that, like, I'm not talking about his opinions because I disagree with most of his opinions, but I find that his player cards at least give more context than, let's say, ineffective math or evolving the wild or, let's say, um, who's it? Tony Romo. Like, you don't find that Jay Fresh gives, like, more context at least? I, I very much dislike those player cards. They're just okay. random percentages with random colored. So even the fucking most simple-minded knuckle-dragging troglodyte can tell you that red is bad, blue is good. It was I had this problem with fucking when Seth Jones was rumored to come to the Flyers earlier in the year. People would just screenshot that and send it to me. And I would tell them, what does this mean? What does that specific thing you're trying to point at mean? And most people don't know. Because 44% defense doesn't mean shit! Okay? We all went to math class once upon a time. Remember you had to show your work in math class? And this is where I can at least kind of respect what ineffective math is doing with the things, because there's clearly some kind of formula going into what the fuck they're doing, versus Jay Fresh's player cards, which are random percent- What does 44% defense mean? You know? There's no context to any of this shit. That actually really pisses me off, those player cards. Okay, well- Whatever, I, I think they're all idiots, but whatever. Maybe I just have more time for Jay Fresh. Whatever. So this guy was t- speaking specifically about Jay Fresh. So he said, and this is my buddy who is high up in a bank in the analytics department. He says, it's just working with models is a very nuanced thing. You need to consider the underlying assumptions, limitations, methodologies, alternative availability, and so much more. It takes years to develop that kind of understanding, and even then, a model should only be one tool in your analysis. I find he just has it output a result and then bases his conclusions on it. And that's perfectly perfectly stated because they're building models as to what they believe a good hockey player is. Yes. Like, you can take all, like, look, like, I consult of uh, analytics almost every day. Like, Evolving Hockey, I'll say, like, I like their template. I think it's very well, like, like, I don't agree with their fucking, 
their opinions a lot of the time, like the Nachushkins better than Dreisaitl take. They blocked me for but, that, yeah, for dunking on them. Yeah, but, yeah. like, as opposed for, as, like, in terms of just looking at statistics just put out, like, I think they do a good job. And I look at them almost daily because I do think that it is a very valuable tool when you're analyzing players. But if I decide to say, well, I value this in a player more than this, and I value that in a player more than that, then you can tell me, then I'm going to give you a subjective model or result from my model based on that. Like I said earlier, that I think that objectively speaking, you could make a fair argument to whether or not Sanheim is a better defenseman or Ristolainen is a better defenseman. But it comes down to preference as to what you value in a hockey player. Do you not agree? Yeah. If you want the more offensive side of the game, you're going to favor Sanheim. If you can respect the physical stay-at-home aspect, you're going to respect Ristolainen more. And, you know, obviously... If, yeah, I, I get why people like Sanheim, because theoretically you want a player to be well-rounded, and I guess that's the overall point of analytics, is you know, find the most complete player in every aspect of the game. And, you know, he's going to produce more, especially over the last few games. I really like the way Sanheim has been testing offensively now uh, not afraid to shoot the puck not afraid to go down and in, in, into the zone into the hash marks and really make something happen which is great um but you know i think wrist line and stay at home physicality has been been so badly missing on that blue line and he's done a lot of very good things back there as well so that's kind of what we wanted out of that pair to begin the year was you want a really good solid stay-at-home defenseman and you want an offensive guy that's going to take a little more risk because he knows he has a partner that can handle the defensive side of the game and I think that's, like, I'm not even going to lie, man. Like, I'm even getting kind of annoyed with, like, several people, like, bitching that Sanheim isn't physical. I'm just like, it's not his game. It never will be his game. Could we move on? He does other things right, and now with Ristolainen, they balance each other out. Like, I'm, it's almost like at a certain point, you just have to accept what a player is. Like, you can't force him to be something he's not. And the same goes for Ristolainen. Like, I can't be two-faced here. Like I said, I think that in terms of the Flyers as to what they needed, and just my personal preference out of what I want from a defenseman, i rather risk a lion. But let's say you're talking about the Boston Bruins, whose two best defensemen are on the right side with Carlo and McAvoy, and they're physical. If I'm running that team, without a doubt, I take Travis Sanheim. And to your point, maybe if you're starting from scratch, you do take Travis Sanheim because, you know, you do want a, a more well-rounded defenseman who can move the puck, who can theoretically be a guy who can exit the zone all on his own. Th this is just like, it comes down to preference a lot of the time. It's not always black and white as to he's better, he's worse. And that's what I think a lot of the times you get with these analytics um, models and all this, because... They try and rank every player accordingly, when in reality, I think a lot of times with hockey players, it's kind of like tiers. Like, there's players in this tier, there's players in that tier, and depending on which one you think is quote-unquote better is depending your need on your specific team. Like, it's the same concept with, let's say, Ivan Provorov and Ryan Ellis. Like, you can make an argument that either is probably better, to be honest with you. But what do the Flyers need more? Do they need more of a durable guy who can eat these heavy minutes? Or do they need a guy who's probably a more well-rounded defenseman who does, I don't know, who's better with puck decisions? Uh, I just think that analytics, when you're analytics only, and to your point, it's clearly evident in a lot of cases that these guys don't watch the hockey games. 
you try and say like these things are matter of fact when in hockey there's so many moving parts that it's not as simple as just ranking them in percentiles and saying he's better he's worse and and that's the 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 thing with analytics is you can tell these people don't watch hockey games and you can tell they're living and dying by whatever their model suggests. My favorite part of hockey analytics in general is that none of the creators like each other because they think their system is better than the other one, you know? Oh, you know, (laughs) so it's just one of those things that there's not enough context in analytics. And I think that's kind of the ultimate irony of the, 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 the process is you, especially as we continue on here, you know, analytics get more and more detailed and they go into accounting for different scenarios and line mates and whatnot. But I feel like the more you do that, the less of the actual hockey game people tend to understand. And it's just hockey is too fluid of a sport. There's too much going on. There's too many uncertainties, too many unknowns to truly sit there and live and die by numbers on a piece of paper. And unfortunately, so many people do that. And then they get the preconceived notions that Ristolainen's the worst defenseman in the league and will never get any better. And it blows their little fucking incompetent minds when he goes out there and has a good hockey game. And, well, it's a sample size. And we're going to hear excuses all goddamn year. You know, like Carter Hart's looking good. You know, he's potential Vesna race as of right now. Well, it's just a sample size. You know, last year, the one bad year of his career, that's the real Carter Hart. You know, like, fuck off. You know, just watch a goddamn hockey game and then get back to me. And, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I I don't know. These people just unbearable, unbearable for, for people that just don't understand hockey. You know, they, they just want to live and die by the numbers on a page. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that we're going this way because you can't even have, you know, realistic debates with most people anymore. Well, I think a good example was, you know, like a lot of people were, torching jay fresh because he thought the the kraken were going to be good right and then his defense was well if anyone could have predicted that grubauer would be the worst goalie in the nhl i'd sure like to see it <laughs> yeah, I saw that. and that's yeah. when watching the game comes you into not play see the team they drafted like... but it's also because yes there's that and anyone who watched philip grubauer play like, for me personally, I always thought he was a fraud. I thought it was laughable that he was the Vezna Trophy finalist last year. And look, I understand that he had great numbers and by all these metrics he did well. And yes, he did well in Colorado. But my point is, is that, like, did anyone really think that Grubauer was that good of a goalie? Like, honest to God, everyone. Like, I just... That's where watching the game comes into account because you actually have to watch it to see, like, damn, this guy's a good goalie, but he's not that good. You know what I'm saying? Like, there are goalies who are very, that will excel in certain roles, and he struck me as that. And if you couldn't foresee that Grubauer would do significantly worse in Seattle, and I know you're going to say that on paper they probably have a better defense than Colorado and blah, blah, blah. But, like, that's the kind of lack of context that a lot of these people have. And I guess I'm kind of fucking speaking out both sides of my mouth right now because I opened with saying that I thought Jay Fretch gave more context than most. But then he was saying that Philip Grubauer was going to lead the fucking crack into the promised land this year. So, I don't know. It, it's, it's too bad because I've made a big effort over the last couple of months, last year, to be 
more privy to analytics. And I stand by that I think they are very valuable in player development or player evaluation, rather. But it's when you have these people who just don't watch the games and it's so obvious that they don't, that gives analytics a bad name, unfortunately. Yeah, and to your point on Grubauer, I never thought too highly of the guy either. And, you know, succeeding in Colorado versus succeeding on an AHL team in Seattle is different. Well, who expected them to suck so bad? It's like, bro, did you fucking look at the guys they drafted on that team? If they, <laughs> they have, what, four wins on the year? Like, I feel like that's yeah, too many at this point. But uh, plus they have Dave Haxtell. Fuck that guy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the lack of common sense among these guys and, and things like that take with, you know, who expected Grubar to fail? It's like, eh, probably most people, actually. You know, it's just the the lack of common sense that comes from these people and their refusal to admit when they're wrong just uh, just makes for rough shit. And unfortunately, you know, the analytics community is just, just, just the worst. And uh, for what it's worth, I do always appreciate your approach to the analytics Um where you are clearly watching these games, you clearly understand the sport of hockey, and then you reference analytics afterwards. Like, that's what should be done. And when you can watch Ristolainen and have a really good game, like we have over the last few numbers, and you check the analytics and they back those up, that's what you want to see. And you put out the number uh, a couple days ago about Lindblom leading the team in expected goals, and... I'm like, great, I'm glad that's the case because that's exactly what I'm seeing with my own eyes. He may not be scoring, but I feel like he's in the middle of pretty much every high danger chance they have. So it's good, like, these, it's not useless numbers. It's the fucking people no, that are useless. And that's just, it's too bad, man. Because this, you turn off hockey analytics to anybody with half a goddamn brain, you know? And it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's too bad. Well, yeah, because... Look, if you didn't watch the games, let's say, since the Toronto game, let's say, you could, and you look just at the underlying numbers, you could easily say, you know what, Sanheim and Ristolainen are the Flyers' two best defensemen right now. They should be the top pair. They should do this. They should do that. Because those two, specifically Ristolainen, have played well and have good underlying numbers, while Provov and Braun have not been playing as good as usual and have had relatively mediocre underlying numbers as of late. But if you're watching the games and you see the skill sets of all those players, and mostly Provrov and even a guy like Braun who does make the simple play, tries to play mistake-free hockey, you could tell with your own eyes, like, A, Provrov and Braun are eating much tougher minutes as a whole. I know that Ristolain gets a lot of defensive zone starts, but... As a whole, Provov and Braun are eating the heavier mids against the other team's best lines. And number two is that if Ristolainen and Sanheim were playing those number those minutes, you know that their analytics would be skewed in a different way. And I don't think anyone is advocating for Sanheim and Ristolainen to be playing higher in the lineup than Provov and Braun right now just because they're succeeding at their roles. Like, I had one person tell me, like, I think Ristolainen is a first-pairing defenseman. Not a star, but a first-pairing defenseman. Good guy, too. But I said, no, I don't think he is. Like, he's doing very well in his role right now. But when I watch him play, I could see parts of his game that says, like, okay, if he was against, let's say, 
the McDavid's and the Matthews of the world each and every night on each and every shift, I could see how it could start to go sideways. I think he's good right where he is. But if you were going just based on analytics and albeit in a small sample size, you could be like, oh, okay, this guy, he's a stud shutdown guy. He found his groove in Philadelphia. He should be playing first first pairing minutes, top power play, this, that, and the other thing. But when you watch it, you know that there's much more to it than just him having good underlying numbers. Yeah. And I think that's what makes Ristolainen so polarizing in the first place is he's playing well. The numbers are showing that he's playing well, but there are still obvious faults in his game, you know, and he and Sanheim are working together very well. I would not want them playing any higher than they are, and they really don't have to play any lower than they are. They're playing well. And quite frankly, I think this goes back to the Justin Braun thing where he's very good. I, I really do like Justin Braun, um, but it's clear at this point in his career that he is over his head a little bit playing such hard minutes with Provorov, with Ellis out of the picture um, for, you know, the foreseeable future at this point, um, which which is too bad. You know, if you he can handle those spot starts when Ellis first went down and look very, very good playing heavy minutes. But now that he's been doing it for, you know, almost a month. Uh, you can tell that he's, you know, a little over his head at this point. And uh, it's just too bad. And, you know, the the state of the defense, we you know, have touched upon this for a little while now, kind of, you know, trying to get back on track here. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, I like Nick Sealer. I appreciate the overall game that he plays. But as time goes on, you know, and the physicality goes away and he just kind of exists, I think he's a very good number seven, number eight defenseman to have around, but, you know, the fact that this guy's playing every night is just brutal. Um, it's not getting any better. Keith Yandel has fallen off a major friggin' cliff over the last few games, which does not help either. It's not time for Keith Yandel to crumble, uh, you know, in his own zone. So the top four has been very good, but, you know, you got to... It's unfortunate it's happening now in the middle of November because you don't typically see any trades this time year, let alone worthwhile trades, but... Uh, you know, if this continues to kind of head south over the next few weeks, I wonder if a trigger is not pulled sooner or later, um, either for a trade or you have to reach into your bag of tricks and call up either York or Zamula and kind of build around them at this point, just because the sealer and the depth roll and brawn up top isn't working super well right now. Well, like I was going to ask you, like, how long do you think that they could tread water without adding another guy? Well, I think this next stretch of games is going to tell that pretty well. I think they're doing a decent enough job right now, and it helps that they're getting some, you know, awesome goaltending from both Hart and Jones. Um, you know, that helps uh, make the defense look a little more palatable at the end of the day. But, you know, the Lightning twice, Florida, Boston. I mean, their next five games, Lightning, Boston, Lightning, Florida, Carolina. Yeah, that's fucking brutal. Um, you know, hopefully Carter Hart and Jones can hold down the fort through those games. Um, and you can, you can piece together something and at least kind of decent efforts. But, you know, I, who the hell knows when Ellis is coming back at this point? He's week to week. I believe they're talking about potential surgery. I think it's a groin issue. So who the hell knows, you know, when that's going to heal, if it's going to heal this year. And, and, you know, trade deadline, I believe is like March 21st or something. Cause the Olympic break pushes everything back a few weeks. Um, so, you know, they got a lot to go here. If they can hang through these next few games, 
maybe they can push it off a little longer, but I mean, if they're clearly struggling defensively through the, the through these next few, it wouldn't surprise me if they at least call up someone like Cam York you know, over the next few weeks, maybe sometime in early December, and that poses its own question, just because York is a lefty, and Zamul is a lefty, which, you know, you're only right, uh, you have Adam Clendenning, and you have um, Wiley. Wyatt, Wiley. Uh, yeah, Wiley is your uh, right-handed down there. So you can call up York or Zamula, but do you put them on the third pair with Yandel playing on the right, which doesn't seem like a great idea to help York succeed, especially with Yandel being the biggest disaster that he is right now, or do you call up York, you roll with Provorov, Risto, York, Braun, and then Sanheim Yandel, which doesn't sound great either. So, you know, it's unfortunate that they are lefties because it seems like you are fairly limited in the way you can actually deploy them once they make it to the NHL. And the other thing about calling up York, to your point, is are you going to play him with Yano on the third pair or just completely reconfigure all the D pairings? And for me, I just don't think that you could really risk, you know, Risto with Braun right now and then like Yandel with Sanheim. Like, I like the top four as is right now. And anything other than that is kind of a recipe for disaster. Which brings me to the point of saying that I think that they need a guy, and I keep zeroing in on Mark Stahl. I think he's had a very good run this season with Detroit. I think he could play both sides of the defense. He has familiarity with AV. Like, that's a guy for me that would give them options because that's a defenseman that, in my opinion, is the perfect type of guy to ease in a York or Zimula. Or just play on the third pair with Yandel. Like, I think a guy like Mark Saul would help Yandel settle in, kind of like when Yandel was playing with Justin Braun for, what was it, like four periods in total this year? So I just think that, like, getting a veteran guy would help ease in, settle down Yandel if you want to stick with him. Or if you have a guy like York or Zimula, it's the perfect guy to help ease one of them in. Like, I've said it for a long time that, in my opinion... If these guys, York or Zemula, are going to make the team this year, I think it's going to be in place of Keith Yandel. I don't think it's going to be to, you know, play with Keith Yandel. Because I said it last last show, is that right now you need a guy to take Justin Braun's role. Because Justin Braun is taking Ryan Ellis' role. So I don't think that you could ask a York or Zemula to take on Braun's role, especially alongside Keith Yandel. So I just think that, and I know that there's cap implications, you know, not many trades get made this early on in the season, but for me, I think adding a guy like Mark Stahl, not specifically him, but just someone of that type, would go a long way on numerous fronts. Yeah, yeah, they're going to uh, need to figure something out here, and I don't know, I, I, I can't imagine you reshape your top 4D to accommodate York, but I don't think he succeeds next to Yandel. I believe two months from tonight, exactly, in uh, January 18, would be Yandel passing uh, Jarvis for the long-starred man streak. So, two more months before he can sit, <laughs> before he can sit Yandel, uh, which is you know too bad. Maybe Ellis will be back by then. Who the fuck knows? But uh, yeah, they gotta gonna have to figure something else out. Even if Ellis comes back. You know, around Christmas or so. I believe he's on LTIR till I believe the 8th, uh, which, you know, seems early for him to come back, even at that point. So, who knows? We'll have to uh, 
you know, hopefully Braun can keep playing real well and Sandheim Ristolainen can stay at this level, if not better, and Provorov continues to be pretty decent. And, uh, you know, you can rely on Yandel, you know, less and less as the games go on here, and Sealer can just not screw anything up royally. But unfortunately, that third pair is getting worse by the game, and, you know, Braun and Provorov have slowed down a little bit lately. Uh, but, you know, Risto and uh, Sandheim are at least holding down the fort in their own right right now. So it's a fluid situation on D, but something that they are going to have to address sooner or later. How long do you think it will be? And, you know, they still are winning almost every second game right now. They've been 500, I think, in the March of in the March in the month of November, if I'm not mistaken. But at what point could you see AV being on the hot seat? I've heard a couple of people talk about this over the last little while, and and I'm fascinated at the idea because I don't really see him being on the hot seat right now. Um, if they completely fall off the rails at some point, I think it's possible. It, maybe his seat's mildly warming up a little bit, but but I don't really see him as a prime candidate to be fired yet um if they miss the playoffs this year if things fall apart later in the year if they play 500 hockey from here on out maybe but i i, I really don't think and this, i was baffled uh, at the press conference yesterday when alevio took the entire bullet for how bad the power play has been he didn't throw terry under the bus even in the slightest and i was shocked that was your prime opportunity to put the blame on somebody else and he didn't um so that that's, you know, in terms of production, that's not the greatest uh, thing he could have done there. But I don't know how hot his seat is just yet. That, that is not a thought that has really crossed my mind to this point in the season. Well, you know, we've talked about it a lot. And, you know, I've gotten the sense from when I've spoken to people in the organization that A.V. and Terrier, or French Mike, which I think is the funniest <laughs> nickname ever, um... I feel like they kind of are a package deal, kind of like Peter Laviolette and was his name Kevin McCarthy, the defensive coach that has literally followed him everywhere in the NHL. Some coaches always want a specific assistant. Now, obviously, A.V. has not had Terry as, a, as an assistant ever before, or maybe he did in Montreal his first go around when he was there in the 90s. I'm not sure. But, I mean, maybe that's the case right now. But on the other front is, like we talked about last time, is that if AV were to get canned, and I would assume that Terrian would get fired as well, if AV were ever to go, I think it would it really be Mike Yo. Unless it's in like uh, in the off season, then maybe they look for a fresh face entirely. But in season, I get the sense that Mike Yo would be the head coach of this team. And look, I like Mike Yo. I've spoken to him several times. Seems like a really, really good guy. I love what he's done with the PK and the penalty kill today, uh, this year. But at the same time, is he the type of guy I think would be the difference between making this a much better team? You know, you, there's a track record with Yo as a head coach in Minnesota and St. Louis, and neither time he did specifically well. So, I mean, I don't, I don't get the. I said this early in the week. I don't get the sense that you know av is the problem primarily i think there are some coaching decisions that he makes that are a bit of head scratchers but it doesn't strike me as a team that has quit on him 
And again, you could change the coach. Like you said, in a best case scenario, you could bring in like a Rick Tockett. But again, you're still going to be missing that massive piece up front. And I mean, I guess you could. I don't know. It's just to me, I think that there's bigger fish to fry right now, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. There there are bigger issues than, than the coach. And, you know, is Mike Yao going to be a better option than Elaine V. Yo? Is... You know, is Mike Babcock going to be a better option than Levy? Yo, is 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 you know, unless Barry Trotz gets fired and you want to throw ten million dollars at this guy to come coach the team and instill a system, that's great. But at this point in time, you know, maybe Rick Tockett would be an improvement, but even that is you know relatively untested waters. Um, you know, they're just not an enticing option out there to fire Vino for. And I know I can pretty much guarantee Fletcher's going to hire Yao afterwards, regardless, because that's what he fucking does, right? Then Yao will be here for <laughs> 15 years. And, uh, you know, I don't exactly have an issue with him right now, but I don't want him as the fucking head coach either. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, unless Trotz or Brenda Moore become available or a bigger name in the offseason and you want to reassess then more power to you. But firing Yao, uh, AV right now, I just don't think there's anybody that is going to be a suitable upgrade to Vigneault. And yeah, he has some boneheaded coaching moves and some stupid decisions, but everybody does, right? No matter who you're going to fucking bring in, people are going to complain about the next guy too. So right now you just got to kind of grind it out with AV. It does not feel like they've given up on him. Um you know, we've seen that quite a bit over the last few years in Philly, you know, with the, with the Haxtell air, we saw how fucking bad that got, even to Bruby to an extent. Um, you know, what a team giving up on their coach looks like, and, and I don't really get that sense yet. Um, and if he, if he survived last year, you're not going to wait 15 games and fire him this year. You're just not going to do that, unless things got real bad, and to this point, they have not. So, I don't think that's a problem... Now, again, if we want to reassess later in the year when shit gets bad or, or in the offseason, if, you know, whatever happens, um, we can. But for the time being, I really don't think AV seat is that hot. Unless somebody becomes, of serious note, becomes available that you would want an upgrade for. But even then, I don't think it's going to happen. On the power play front, like, obviously, Terry has a lot of blame here. But I actually found the formation, specifically on the first unit decent last game but it's just like no one has that killer instinct offensively like it seemed like the only guy who was shooting was keith yandel almost to a fault sometimes but i felt like at, at a certain point he was just blasting him on net just to get some kind of offense generated but do you think that it's 50 50 between coaching and players do you think it's 70 40 like how would you disperse the blame here i think most of it's on the players at this point um, the coaching decision to break up the original units was dumb. But, you know, to give Terry and credit, he has kind of tried to adjust lately. And we talked about this earlier in the show. Like, they're just throwing anything against a wall and hope it sticks at this point just because they are so desperate. From an overall perspective, not just on the power play. Um, the players need to be better. And it doesn't take a fucking genius to look at this roster and go, yeah, you're missing that that sniper, that guy that can really produce offense. And, you know, you can. it's unfortunate. They are really going through Yandel. I'm glad you pointed that out because, holy shit. I mean, any, any pretty much any power play chance is starting through Yandel, which is not ideal. Um, I, I do think overall the power play has looked better this year. Even when they are struggling, I think there's a lot more movement. It's not nearly as stale as it you know as it has been in the past few years. So 
it's nice seeing some changes. They are doing different things, but it's it's one of those situations where you can clearly tell that there's a lack of true offensive talent on this team. And I think Charlie was going off on this on Twitter the other day about like, well, you know, Jure doesn't have to be on the left side. He's failing on, you know, the power play fails when he's on the left. And to an extent that's true, but it's giving yourself the best chance to succeed with Jure on the left versus the right. So I don't know what the fuck kind of point he was trying to make there. I, I, I do, You just need some help. And, you know, shuffling the deck chairs at this point, hoping that something sticks sooner or later is, is just what they're going to have to do until somebody gets hot. But, you know, trying to base everything around Atkinson early on after he had already cooled down just really, I think, hurt the overall team chemistry. Um, and they've just never quite been able to succeed again. And they just need more options out there. And uh, like I said, I have liked the power play scheme overall. The problem is they fucking can't even get into the zone to get set up most of the time, which is, you know, an ongoing issue that's bigger than just the inability to produce. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, I, I do think this is more on the players at the moment than it is the coaching staff. But, you know, Terry needs to to figure something the fuck out quick to try and, and spark some life in here. So, I don't know. It, it's kind of... Maybe not 50-50. I would put a little more blame on the players and the coaches, but at the same time, you know, it's on Terry and shoulders to figure out what the fuck to do here. Well, like you said earlier, I respect that Terry tried to give them a different look because there was just so many years where it was just always the same thing, no matter who the coach was. Like, Giroux on one wall, Vorchek on the other, and then just, like, saucering across the slot to one another. But I also feel like, if I'm not mistaken, early on in the year, they were trying to get more of, like, a movement on the power play as aside from a shooting unit, yes. correct? Yep. yep. And for me, I think that, like, it's all... Like, I respect what they were trying to do, but I don't think they're skilled enough to, you know, have a unit like that. Like, I'm probably in the minority here, but given the personnel that they have at their disposal, I actually do think that Giroux should be on the right side, just because... Unless you have Yandel or Provorov or Ristolainen feeding Giroud for the one-timers, you don't really have any other weapons with Giroud on the left side. But I've said for a while now that the Flyers have a lot of right-shot guys who are good trigger men. Like, I've been saying for so long that if it were up to me, the first unit would be JVR Netfront, Giroud on the right side... And then you have Atkinson in as the bumper, ready for the one-timer. Ristolainen in the Giroux spot, ready for the one-timer. And then Yandel at the top. And I think that going two defensemen on both units would be ideal it's, uh, when Ellis comes back. Because I think when Ellis is out, you don't have like another guy who could play the power play effectively. So maybe on the second unit, you have like Hayes, Couturier, Konechny, and Farabee up front. And then you have Provorov at the point. But on that first unit... Because you have guys like Atkinson and because you have a guy like Ristolainen, who, as I said before, you can make the case right now is their best offensive player, including forwards. I don't know why they're not using that like to their advantage. So, I mean, would you be on, like, in terms of Giroud being on the right side that historically has not done well, would you consider it based on the other guys they have? You've got too many people that are all the same hand. I think which is the problem. You have so many goddamn righties on that power play when you have Atkinson, Konechny, and Giroux out there at the same time. You lose a little bit of that ability to be dynamic. And 
that was always the thing with, with Drew and Voracek, is you had a lefty and a righty. You know, you could be a little more creative, and, and unfortunately they weren't. They were fucking shit. But, uh, you know, when with everybody being on the same hand, you know, Katuri is your bumper guy in front of the net, and I guess he handles a lefty on the point, but all your guys in the middle there are just fucking, they're all right-handed guys, and, and that, you know, it takes away some of the creativity. So you could stock it up with that but you you almost need to include a lefty in there somehow just to present a little bit more you know dynamic ability to to try and get some offense going um so i don't know until you know i don't i don't prefer you on the right but if you want atkinson on the left i guess it's probably the next best thing so it doesn't particularly matter it's hard to pick apart something that you know, has been so bad, you're kind of, again, at that point where you just got to throw something against the wall and hope it sticks. Um, but uh, I think historically with how good Giroux is on the power play, moving him from the spot that he's been historically good at just doesn't seem like the best idea, certainly long-term anyway. One thing I wanted to get to before we wrap it up today is uh, Sean Couture. Because he's a guy that he's, you know, the the kingpin of the can do no harm club. Mm-hmm. But I'm not gonna lie, man. Like, if you were gonna ask me one of the most disappointing players so far this year, he would arguably be at the top of my list. I asked, I guess it was on this show, maybe the first one last week, if he is injured or not, and because there was that one game specifically where everything fell apart for him, and he has not looked good since. So, I don't know if it's an injury or if it's just, he's which, if he's fallen off a cliff, that's not great because he just signed him for fucking eight years. But, uh, yeah, he's not been very good. And, you know, he's had some, some nice plays now and again, but his overall picture has been very, very disappointing. So, you know, I don't know if he's hurt and playing through it and just suffering because of it, or if there's something more going on here. But yeah, Katuri has been incredibly disappointing, uh, especially as we continue to go into the season here. And like, look, he still does all the little things right, decent underlying numbers. You know, he's a guy that you can rely on in almost any situation. But I think when you're trying to evaluate him in the context of being the best forward on the team, the best player on the team, the number one center you run into you run into a situation where you're left wanting more because this is a team that so desperately lacks a dynamic offensive element and theoretically everything is supposed to run through him and when it's not running through him like you are left asking questions and i said you know on twitter after last game is that Giroux is still far and away still the most dynamic offensive player on this team. And it's kind of worrisome because you have a guy like Katori, who you just alluded to was locked in for eight years beyond this season. And I know like some people, you know, in the brotherly uh, puck uh, community, you know, are advocating to trade him. But I think at that point, this trip, that ship, that ship has sailed. Easy enough for me to say, I just, I can't foresee them, you know, locking him into an eight-year contract extension than trading him. I just don't see it happening. But I do think that what you're going to need if you want ha- to have any long-term success here is to get another almost like 1B first-line center. And I know a lot of people will be like, well, then you have Kevin Hayes as the most expensive 3C in the NHL. And you know what? If that's it, then so be it. Like, if they have to have a bunch of wingers making you know, $3 million or less because they're paying their centermen so poor, uh, so much money, 
then, you know, then that's just the, you know, what's going to have to happen because we've tried for years investing tons of money on the wing with the likes of Giroud and JVR and Voracek, now Atkinson, Travis Konechny. Like, their offense has been driven through the wing for so many years and it has not gotten them anywhere substantial. I think that when you look at a lot of teams in the NHL, and obviously, you know, it's hard to compare yourselves to the Pittsburgh Penguins, but they for years ran through their centermen, their top three. It was Crosby, Malkin, and whether it was Jordan Stoll to start off or Nick Benino in the later years, they had all their money primarily invested down the middle of the ice and then interchangeable wingers around them. You had some guys that stuck, like the Kunitzes, Kessel for a few years, but their main pieces and the main cogs of their machines were always down the middle of the ice. And I think that reigns true with a lot of teams in the NHL. So I think that if you have to, you know, spend $25 million or maybe not that much, $23, 24000000 million on three centermen and sacrifice some players on the wing, then you have to do it. Because as of right now, they're not going to win with Couturier and Hayes, at least in my opinion, as their one-two centermen, unless they went out and got a guy like J.G. Pajot. But... You know, those guys are hard to come by and, you know, even more so hard to come by like a guy like Dylan Larkin or Tomas Hurdle. But, you know, I just think they have to make a serious investment into another winger who could arguably be a first line player. Yeah, and that's their, uh, you know, prize ticket uh, at the trade deadline, really. You know, they could use a depth guy like a Mark Stahl on defense, but they really need some help down the middle. And, you know, if you can get a Larkin and come in and take some pressure off of Sean Couturier, and you take all the pressure off of Kevin Hayes, and you have a one-two-three punch of Larkin, Couturier, Hayes, that's pretty goddamn good, um, you know, at least theoretically. And you've got more than enough talent on the wings. You have more than enough dead money on the fucking wings and guys like Travis Konechny and, and even to an extent Lindblom, and I hate trashing that guy, but $3 million, you're not really living up to it. You know, that's $8.5 million between Konechny and Lindblom that are just wasted, essentially. Um, so you got to figure something out here and, you know, I mean, how fucking long we've we been talking about the lack of a three C feels like it's been 10 years now, you know, and, uh, they didn't really address it this summer and, you know, Assard has been fine. A lot has been fine, but those are not legitimate true centers uh that three C at this point in their career maybe earlier Brassard was and you know Lawton on select nights could be but that's not ideal every night all night you know for 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 true success so finding him top six center uh, should be priority and unfortunately those are as you alluded to not guys that grow on trees that you can just easily snag they're all guys that you pretty much have to you know draft internally or overpay like a some bitch uh you know in free agency or or via trade so we shall see so one crazy trade scenario let's say come the deadline that i would just like and you know it's always fun to just theorize on this and obviously i'm going back to larkin because i'm obsessed with this player but in your opinion and it would let's say you had to get a third team involved like the coyotes which we know that they love to do get involved in three-way deals they were trying to do with the eichel trade to retain salary and by extension garner assets for it would you do something along the lines where you had to throw Limblom to Arizona for them to, you know, take on that salary to make the money work and also give them, let's say, a third round pick for their troubles? And then you give Farabee, York and a first for Larkin and Stahl 
and the wings, let's say, retain half a stall and let's say the coyotes retain half of Larkin too. Like, obviously, these are very, like, you know, far-fetched ideas, but something that may have to come to fruition if they want to make a deal like that, kind of like what we saw with uh, Nick Foligno last year. There was a three-way deal for him to fit in Toronto, the retained salary and all that. Is that something you would do, even though it's a massive haul to bring in guys like Larkin and Stahl? I would consider it. Um, It's something that, you know needs to be done the financial landscape that the flyers find themselves in doesn't exactly give them the luxury to work through many trades um and you know even detroit at this point you know is is going to try and demand the best they can especially if it's for larkin and to pay out the ass for him uh so you know having to get a third party in there like arizona who is not afraid to eat some salary at the right price um maybe the the solution there it would need to be something crazy like that if you if you need larkin at this point um you know, oh, yeah, again, this is all, <laughs> I would need to sit down and do all this, uh, you know, writing and see what the hell's going on here in hand and look around to, to see how that would work out uh, officially. But yeah, it would need to be something crazy like that. And, you know, the Flyers would need to give up something serious and, and people are going to hate it. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the old Braden Shen thing. Does anybody in St. Louis know who Joel Farabee or Morgan Frost are? No, of course not. Cause they have Braden Shen and Stanley cup and that's all that matters. So it's going to hurt, but something like that may need to be, you know, the ultimate end game here if the Flyers want a legitimate top six center. And like we've said it numerous, numerous times this year is that I don't think that this is a team that is going to age like a fine wine. Like, I don't think that they're at a stage where it's just like, oh, you know, next year, York, Zamula, Forster, like they have nothing coming that fits what they theoretically need long term. What yeah. they need long term is a top six dynamic offensive centerman. And I mean, if you want to hold out hope for Morgan Frost, then more power to you. But I mean, I said it, I think it was last week, that I think you'd be much better off keeping Morgan Frost as, let's say, a fallback option as a centerman and maybe try and project him more as a winger at this point. Take some pressure off the guy. And then whatever happens after that is gravy. But I just, I really don't see this as a team that you can afford to wait with. Like I said it last week, I think that they made this, I like, I think that they made this team better, but they did make this team older, which is fine if you're going to want to win. Like if your plan is to win, then I have no issue trying to make this team older. But if you made this team older just to go with a half-pregnant approach, like, let's say, you know, like, okay, our goal is to make the playoff and we'll add Derek Grant at the deadline, well, then what the hell are you doing? Which is why you could have easily made the argument that they would have been better off going on a full-scorched earth rebuild. But you're seeing guys like Giroux or even Katoria, Kevin Hayes, like, these aren't spring chickens. Even a guy like Atkinson, I think Atkinson's a year older than Jake Voracek. Obviously, the contract is much better, but the guy is still older. So, I don't know, I just... I can't subscribe to this belief that, you know, hang on to York and Zamula or even a guy like Farabee and just just wait for next year because, yeah, I think all these players are going to be damn good hockey players for the next decade or so. But by keeping them, do I think they're eventually going to organically turn the Flyers into a contender? That's where I don't think so. According to uh, Levio here, Ryan Ellis expected to be out four to six weeks with lower body injury. Uh, rest and rehab, no surgery at this point. So there you go. We probably won't see Ryan Ellis till Christmas. 
if that. Well, at least now they have, like, a tangible timeline. Which, like, if you're going to wait that long, why not just get surgery? But what the hell do I know, right? Braun, uh, Brown, not Braun. Uh, Patrick Brown to see doctors today to determine how long a thumb injury will keep him out. How do you dislocate your thumb playing hockey? I feel like he probably pitchforked his stick in the boards, probably. Hmm. That's what I would assume. But uh, could you see foresee them treading water uh, without Ellis, with just the status quo? Maybe. Let's see. Four weeks. One, two, three, four. Would put them the week of December 12, which, you know, I mean, at that point, they've survived the gauntlet. Well, maybe not survived, but they ran through the gauntlet of uh, all their tough games and things slow down kind of bit. New Jersey, Montreal, Ottawa, Washington, Pittsburgh. And that point, six weeks puts in one, two, three, four, five, six after Christmas, uh, the week after Christmas. So by that point, we'll find out who the Flyers are, that's for sure, uh, with or without Ellis um, in that time. And, you know. We'll see. We'll see if they can survive the gauntlet or not, because this is going to be, especially the next two weeks here, this, this is the big one to get through. After that, the schedule kind of goes back to at least a normal uh, normal difficulty, but this is going to be a very, very rough stretch of, you know, five games upcoming here. So for you, are you, like, with with Ellis out, would you just expect them, like, if they just treaded water, like, essentially went maybe a bit over 500 and just hung around the wild card picture without Ellis in the lineup, would that be, like, encouraging to you? To start, yeah. Uh, you know, again, <laughs> the level of competition here kind of skews what you want out of them um, in terms of their production. If they can get through these next, you know, two weeks with 500, and then they can go and dunk on teams like New Jersey and... Uh, they played, God, New Jersey, what, two, t- three times in the next month here. New Jersey, Arizona, Ottawa, even the Islanders and Rangers at this point. If you can go in there and beat them and survive this current stretch at 500, that's pretty good. I, I would take that uh, at this point. You know, if they if they can at least hang in a wild card picture without Alice, uh, that's, that, that, that's decent enough. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's tough. To, because then, you know, numerous people have said it at this point, you can just like lean on the argument of, oh, you need to wait for a healthy lineup. But, you know, their biggest acquisition this summer, who a lot of people are now trying to say was a bad trade, which I find hilarious, but their biggest acquisition this summer has barely played this year. So it's like, damn, like, I wish, like, it, it's hard to say that like you know he's been injured so you can't pass judgment because you also just have to be realistic and have accounted for the possibility that he was going to miss a lot of time given his injury history but conversely it's like damn like their biggest off-season acquisition has barely played so how much are we really going to shit on let's say Fletcher for not making this team good enough when we don't entirely know yeah and and that seems to be the difference between a lot of people are very frustrated and angry at, at Ellis for not playing. And I think the one thing going in, the one thing we knew about this guy for sure was that he is injury prone and you expected him to be out 20 to 30 games a season. So in this sense, I'm not overly surprised, though it is incredibly frustrating that we've seen four games of Ellis when the team looks much better and could be get to that another level with Ellis. So I see both sides of the coin here, but you know, I I, I I still think they need 
not necessarily to shit on Ellis, but I, I, finding another swing guy, finding a legitimate seven guy, I think would set the mind at ease a lot better here um, than it would necessarily blaming Fletcher for not finding the right guy or doing the right thing. Because I think Ellis could be that guy. Um, but, you know, they do need some help in the interim if Ellis is going to be out for, you know, 30 games a season. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think, but Robert Hag would have been the perfect number seven guy this year, eh? Yeah, somebody like that that can you know just eat a bunch of minutes and not screw anything up royally um, would be you know a much needed uh, addition to the team right now. But uh, anyway, well we're going to get a, another good series of litmus test type games uh, between now and the next time we talk. Yep, be back what Tuesday? So Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, we got one. Well, we got Tampa tonight and Boston on Saturday. We'll recover that on Tuesday. Um. We do want to post game with Nick tonight that'll be up tomorrow. We got a frequent flyer preempted for Sunday. Uh, Shane on Monday, Anthony Tuesday. I don't think we're doing a sisterly pod next week. We got American Thanksgiving next week, so um, I don't know how many shows are actually going to get done Wednesday to Friday, uh, but we shall see. I'm sure I'll figure out a way to put something in there somehow. Um, so yeah, at Dan the Flyer fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore Pod. Plenty of stuff on the website now. X Flyer of the Week up today. Justin Williams. Oh, you fucking assholes that cite him as a reason to not make trades anymore. God, I've seen that so much lately with the Patrick Sharp thing. But Patrick Sharp, that was 20 fucking years ago. Let it go, people. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if it were up to a lot of these people, they would never make a trade again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at Adamarco25. All right, everybody. Until next time, goodbye and good night.